Uh, James chapter 2, I'm going to read 14 through 26. I'm going to read the whole passage. Um, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them set, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for grace. Thank you that we can come together, that we can confess that we don't have anything to offer you, that we need your help. And I thank you that you're faithful to give the help that we need. I pray now as we go into your word, I pray you'll, you'll speak clearly. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged. I pray, Lord, that our love for you would be deepened. And I just pray, Lord, that you would use your truth to, um, to just penetrate our hearts and help us to see more of you. In your name, amen. So when we decided that we were going to preach through James, I was really excited because it's a book that has a lot of practical wisdom in it. Um, It's a book that has a lot of application on how we can do it, and I thought, as long as I don't have to preach the section about faith and works, I'll be happy. This is the only part of James that I'm preaching, and it's the section on faith and works. So obviously, God wanted to do something with me, and uh, hopefully with you as well. So um, thankfully, by his goodness, I've gotten over my my, uh, aversion to wanting to preach this passage, but... I think it can be easy to read this passage and walk away thinking we need to do better and we need to try harder for God. And I hope that that's the message that we don't get today. I hope that's the message you don't leave with the onus on you or the weight on you that you've got to to work harder and you've got to do better for God and for Him. Because that, it can be easy to read that and it can be tempting to read this passage and think that that is the main message that James is trying to create is trying to communicate to us, but that's not the message that he's trying to communicate. Um, We're going to see that he and Paul even back each other up on the message of grace um, here in a little bit. So I think it's helpful to look at the leading verses into this passage because they remind us of how holy God is. So in, in verses 8 through 13, God is telling us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He's telling us that his law is holy, which basically means he is, he is so much different than us that he is set apart. He is, he is so much more beautiful than we can imagine. He's so much more glorious than we can imagine. And, um, and, and so his law reflects that. It reflects his beauty and his glory. And, and there's no way that we can keep it. It's impossible. 
And so James, as Travis articulated last week, James does a good job of reminding us that if you break one area of the law, it's as if you've broken the whole law because God is, is holy, he's perfect. You can't just break one area without transgressing against all of the law. And so um, it's important to remember that as we go into this passage because we know the Bible tells us that you cannot keep the law of God. It's, it's holy and we are sinful. And so James is not trying to come and circumvent that and say work hard to try to keep the law. He's saying that if you have true faith, if God really lives in your heart, if you have really been redeemed, the law of good works will follow, that it will be a natural outgrowth, just like me talking right now is not making me alive, but if I was not alive, I would not be able to talk. And so the, the good works flow out of the life that we have in Christ. That's what James is really wanting to communicate here to us. So um, in verses 14 through 16, James sets up this fake dialogue. So he's not really having this conversation with somebody. It's a hypothetical conversation where he asks a couple questions and then he gives an example. So he says, um, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, he says, what good is that? And he says, can that faith save him? So he's asking these kind of two crucial questions. So if, if you're saying, hey, I believe in God, um, but there's no other evidence that you love God other than by you just saying you believe in him, James is saying, do you really believe? Can you have faith that really saves you if that is the case? Um, and then he uses this example. And the example he uses is an act of charity. So remember, James is writing to the church at a time where very few people are Christians in the world. And it's not in vogue. It's not, it's not normal. There aren't churches all over every city. In fact, a lot of these people are being persecuted because they believe in God. Their life is worse because they believe in God. They're shut out of the social norms of society. Many of them are poor. Many of them are persecuted because of their belief in God. And that's, that's the only reason why. So he is using this example as an, as an act of charity. And we know that acts of charity are very important to God in his heart because James reminds us in verse 27 of chapter 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So orphans and widows in that time period, in, in any time period really, a lot of times are, are more helpless and destitute than other members of society, but especially in that time period because there were no really social safety nets. There was no, um, there, there was no such thing as social security or, or um, disability insurance or things like that. So if, if you were a widow or if you were an orphan, a lot of times it meant you were the poorest of the poor and you didn't have anybody to advocate for you or to provide for you. Um, and so we know that acts of charity are important and they certainly should be among the fruit that we produce as we go about in faith. But James is not saying exclusively this only covers acts of charity, that the only way you can show your believers by doing acts of charity. They should be part of what the Holy Spirit is doing through us because we see through the Bible that God cares a lot for, for those that are helpless. And he makes a nation out of the people of Israel where there was no nation. And essentially, the heart of the gospel is that we're all, we're all poor before God. We're, all of us are born dead to sin. 
And he comes and he breathes his life into our lifeless hearts and wakens us up spiritually so that we can live for him. So um, again, the act of charity is important, but don't get hung up on, on it being exclusive. And this, where he says in verse 15, go in peace, be warm and well-fed. Go in peace sounds nicer than, than it really was at that time. So, you know, if you tell someone to go in peace, that's not a real common saying in our day. So, you know, you may walk around, walk away going, oh, that, that sounds nice, or that was weird. Um, but in that day and time, it was kind of similar to good luck. It would be like running upon somebody who had nothing and saying, good luck, I hope things work out for you, and kind of moving on. And so this go in peace, it, it lacks any kind of genuine care or emotion for the person. So, so don't make it nicer than it is. This is essentially coming upon a situation, not really caring at all, and just kind of moving on, on with your life. And so James is saying, he goes on to say in verse 17, that that kind of faith is dead. Um, he said, so also faith by itself is dead. If it does not have works, um, it's dead. So by the way, I meant to mention this in the beginning. The, the title of the message is God will do through you. Um, that's really the point of this whole passage. So I don't have three or four bullet points that you can take notes under. We're going to go through verse by verse, and you'll kind of see that James is highlighting this one main point, that if, if God is alive in your heart, your, your thoughts, your desires, and your actions will look different than when you were dead, when you were dead apart from God. So that's really the main point, kind of the main banner that everything is going to fall under here. So in verse 17, this is a really important verse. He's kind of summarizing everything together. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Um, and so on the flip side, you could say, you could almost kind of say it in reverse, though. You can have as many works as you want to. If there's no faith, you're still dead. So it's not that working earns you favor with God. It's not that working gets you to a place where you are approved by God or God loves you or he likes you better. But it's saying that once God has sealed you, once you're fully approved by him, there are going to be good works that flow out of that. Um, and so, you know, we're, and it, he's also not saying that, that you'll get to a point where you have attained that only there will be good works. We are still... Until we're with God in heaven, we are still sinners. So we're still going to daily struggle with, with pride, with jealousy, with greed, with lust, with um, the, what the Bible calls the temptations of the flesh. We're still going to struggle with, um, with what Paul characterizes in Romans 7 of wanting, knowing what's right and choosing to do the opposite of that. So James is not saying that you'll be free from that. But he is saying that, that those desires will change over time and that there will be things that come out that you didn't have before. So um, apart from Christ, there's really nothing that we can do that's not in some way self-serving. There are plenty of, of people who do, who do not believe who in Jesus or believe in other religions or are godless that do all kinds of nice things. There are plenty of people that give of their, their money, their time, their resources generously, to, to causes for, um, for the poor, for animals, for all kinds of, of causes. There are plenty of people who love their neighbors well, who love their children or their families well. Um, so, so James is not saying you, these things are impossible apart from Christ, but in some way, before the gospel invades your heart, 
All of these things are self-serving. David Pallison in his book, Seeing with New Eyes, captures this point really well. He, he says, Christless, that means things that are done apart from Christ. Graceless, things that are not un, done under his grace. So Christless, graceless attempts at change could um, conclude either with the praise of your own glory or with your shame. So anything you try to do apart from Christ is ultimately, at the end of the day, somehow serves you either it gives you a, a good you know, opportunity to network with somebody, you walk away feeling good, there's some out, outgrowth as to why you were truly motivated to do that. It's not purely altruistic. Once the gospel invades your heart and you die to yourself, all you care about is what God wants to do through you. And that opens up the door for you to actually be able to do acts of service to do things for other people in a way that doesn't connect to you at all. To, it gives you the opportunity to, to serve others because God has loved you. When you were unlovable, he reached in and loved you. It allows you to love other people without needing to get anything in return. Um, so in verse 17, it can be tempting to think that James is potentially contradicting Paul. So Paul wrote more letters in the New Testament than any other, um, any other apostle, and he wrote a lot on the subject of grace. And probably, when I think of Paul, if you had to ask me one passage that comes to mind, the most, the most common one that pops in my head is Ephesians 2. It's one of the ones he's most famous for. And so if you read Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift, the free, you could say the free gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul's making it abundantly clear here. Anything that you did to come to faith in God, it was God doing it in you. There's not a result of works, okay? No one can boast before God. We were dead. He came in. He resuscitated us and brought us to spiritual life. So that seems to go against what James is saying, that if you have faith without works, if you don't have some works, then your faith is dead. This is why it's important to keep reading and not just take subsections uh, under Scripture. So verse 10, so Paul has just said in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then he goes on in verse 10, for we are created, uh, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So James and Paul are not in contradiction with each other. Paul is saying that once you come to faith in Christ, just like it was not your own doing, it was exclusively God's doing, reaching in, breathing life into you and saving you, he has also just as he predestined to save you, he has predestined some good works that are going to happen through you. And so he's saying it in a positive light. God did this. He's also going to do this. James is saying it in just, he's saying the same thing in more of a negative way. If you have Jesus, you have to have these works. If you don't, then you don't truly have and know and believe Jesus. But they're saying the same thing. Just Paul's saying it more positively. James is saying it in a negative way. Our hearts are dull, so a lot of times we need Scripture to say things repetitively and in different ways so that it really sinks in. Um, 
But James and Paul are reaffirming this truth of God, that God is sovereign and that he's prepared us ahead of time for good works. Um, Douglas Moo in his commentary, he captures the essence of this verse really well. This is what he says. Words, sermons, prayer, confession of faith, wise advice, encouragement are all indispensable to true Christianity. But they are shown to have real meaning, James reminds us, when people can see actions that correspond to those words. So that's the point, is you, we can say all of the right things, but if there's a true love for God, that those, the, the, what we say and how we act are going to affirm each other. So let's go on to verse 18. It says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So again, James is telling us that faith is, is, works demonstrate faith when faith is present. So the works are an affirmation of what God is doing in you. And over time, we should see fruit. We should see development in that. And as I was thinking about that, there was a, um, there was uh, something that came to my mind, a memory. And so, um, Prior to Christ, I had a really bad temper and um, would get really angry and a lot of times fly into a rage. Um, it was not uncommon if I lost a game to throw things, throw pillows around in the furniture, run, stomp around. Um, and so my whole upbringing, I had this kind of struggle with anger. And um, by the time I met Robin, my wife, we've been married 15 years in September. The Lord had worked a lot of those things out of my heart. Um, not completely. And so there have been a few times that we've been married that I have lost it and just gone into like not so funny farm needing to be committed rage. And so uh, one time happened last year, and this has now become kind of infamous in our family because Robin was there. Both of my kids were there. Everybody was within feet of me of this happening. They all got to witness it on full display. So it was a nice spring day. We decided that we would go for a bike ride. So we have this bike rack that we can mount our bikes on. And we hadn't, we hadn't really done, we were going to drive to a trail and go riding. We hadn't really done it all winter, so we'd been sitting outside. And so the way the bike rack works is there are these um, bars, and you kind of move these arms up on the bars. You put the bike in, and then you pull them down and secure them. And so... Um, I had gotten them in place except for this one. It was stuck, and I couldn't get it to go all the way up so I could get the bike on there. And um, inanimate objects throw me into a rage more than anything else. <laughs> when they're not working the way that I want them to work, it gets ugly. <laughs> so this thing is stuck. My frustration is mounting. I try to muscle it up. It gets further stuck, and now I can't get it to go up or down. It's just it's locked. And so um, I'm starting to sweat. Uh, I'm starting to seethe with anger. I'm not talking to anyone. And so I decide, all right, I'm going to show this thing who's boss. I'm going to muscle it down, and then I'm going to get it back up. So I plant my left hand underneath it about six inches, and I plant my right hand right here, and I start pulling as hard as I can. Nothing happens for a couple seconds, and then it flies and gashes my left hand. So it, it just tears the skin open, and blood just starts going everywhere. Well, I'm not feeling any pain yet because I am in a rage at this point. 
So I'm standing, we kind of had backed the car up near the garage. There's a trash can near me that I like Chuck Norris kick as hard as I can. And then, just out of anger, the trash can has nothing to do with the story other than that. Then I stomp up through the garage. We have these stairs that lead into our, uh, like into our kitchen. I stomp up the stairs, and on the last stair, I lift my leg up as high as I can, and I stomp it as hard as I can for good measure, and the whole sheer staircase wobbles and shakes. I go into the kitchen, I turn on the water, and I throw my hand underneath, and, I'm, I, know, and, and I just kind of stand there for a second, and I notice like my chest is heaving up and down, and I'm starting to get a little dizzy because the adrenaline is starting to wear off, and, and I notice after about a minute, I feel something here, and, and my oldest, Katie Beth, is just holding me like this from behind. She's standing behind me. Robin is standing next to me with her hand on my shoulder. She has this look in her eyes as if she's looking at a stranger, and she has never seen me before. And then my youngest is kind of cowering next to Robin, looking up at me like I'm a psychopath. And I think it was Evie, my youngest, who actually broke the silence and said, why did you kick the trash can? <laughs> and... Um, so this is, this is like my full, full, you know, exposed, raw, uh, sinful self on display for everybody. So eventually I calm down, we bandage up my hand, we have a good laugh about it, and then we have the same conversation, the, the four or five times this has happened in our marriage, we have the same conversation we have every time. Robin says, once I'm calmed down and rational again, I think you need to go to therapy for anger management. That's not normal that somebody would respond that way to a bike rack. And I always say, we have the same, I always give the same response. It's not always the bike rack, but I would give the same response. Uh, just call my family, tell them what happened, any, pick any of them, call them, and they will all say, yep, that sounds pretty normal for Hunter. Nothing to be worried about. That's just who he is. And so thankfully, by God's grace, what they used to see maybe on a daily basis um, she has only seen, you know, a handful of times in, in 14 or 15 years of marriage. And so um, if, you have, if you have followed Christ for very long, think about how you acted, how you viewed the world, um, how you acted when somebody wronged you, how you um, reacted when things didn't go your way prior to Christ, how you felt, whether that threw you into anger or bitterness or depression Think about how you view the world now, how you view um, how you don't have to hold your hope in things like politics or the economy or your kids and how well adjusted they are. Think about how when somebody wrongs you that you can, um, you may still get angry, but you can eventually move to, instead of moving to forgiveness, you can move, or moving to bitterness, you can move to forgiveness. And because God has forgiven us so much, he extends his grace to us so that we can forgive other people. And so as you think, think about your journey of faith, it should provide hope and encouragement of what, what James is saying here in verse 18, that um, works will follow the faith. It's impossible for them not to. Fruit will follow the faith. It's impossible for it not to. Um, and so I want to move to verse 19, which is, which is a really critical verse as well. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, what James is saying here is a little more radical than in his time than it would be for our time. Again, Christians are a small dot 
in terms of religious faith, if you were to do a census in the Roman world at the time of Christ, even after his death, it may not even show up um, as one of the main religions. So in, that, in those cultures, in the Greek, Roman, barbarian cultures, they had lots of gods. They were very polytheistic. There, were, there was not, most people believed in God. There were some atheists, there were some agnostics, but most people didn't just believe in one God. In fact, a lot of cities back then had their own temples to their own gods. And you could go to various cities and various temples and worship various gods. Um, Greek mythology, uh, as probably most of us studied in school at some point. Um, so what James is saying here is a pretty radical idea. He's saying that you believe that God is one. We can miss that because in our day, it's probably more likely to encounter somebody who doesn't believe in God at all. But if they do believe in God, the fact getting them to, to be convinced there's only one God is, is maybe not the most difficult challenge in the battle. The most difficult challenge may be getting them to believe there is a God. Um, but in that day and time, to go to your neighbor and to say, hey, there is only one God and he can provide life to you, that was a pretty radical concept. And that was going to be hard for a lot of people to, to understand. So James is using a really important point of doctrine to make his point here. He says, you believe there is one God, um, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, when you, when you look at the Bible, there are plenty of instances where it talks about Satan and it talks about the demons. In fact, if you look at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, Jesus comes into this town. He encounters this guy who's demon-possessed. And this is, what the, this is what the demon says. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? So Jesus shows up. This demon knows he's in trouble. And he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? If you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, this is almost as good a greeting as Jesus gets anywhere in the New Testament. The religious leaders were constantly calling him a liar, a bastard, all of these things um, that were not flattering. But this demon calls him son of the Most High God. And so the, the demon understands who Jesus is. He understands that he is sovereign that the demon is subservient to him. He understands that he's sinless. Demons understand that the cross has defeated sin and death, and they understand that there's a coming judgment for them one day. But be clear, they are not going to be in eternity enjoying heaven with God. They are going to be judged and put into the lake of fire. So the point James is making here is you can understand about who God is. You can have a lot of knowledge about God, there are, there are people who've grown up in the church who don't profess faith in Christ. There are scholars who study Christianity who know the Bible better than most of us do that are not believers. James is saying the knowledge, the understanding is not enough. God, the Holy Spirit has to come and invade your heart and breathe life into your heart for there to be real, true, saving faith. And um, when that happens things are going to look different in your life and how you act and how you think and the things that you do. Um, so that's the point that, that, Jesus, or that James is trying to make here. Then he moves on and he's going he's gonna to set up this kind of wordplay and then give a couple examples with Abraham and with Rahab the prostitute. So in verse 20, he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And this gets a little bit lost in the translation 
But he's doing a wordplay here. He's basically saying that faith that doesn't have works doesn't work. So he's saying you don't have, if, if God isn't doing things through your life, there's not true faith there. there if, if he doesn't have works that are flowing out of your faith, then that faith doesn't work. And he uses the word um, foolish. He says, do you want to be shown you foolish person? Now, remember, he's having this fake debate with somebody who's saying, hey, look, all I have to do is believe. I don't have to do anything. He's having this fake debate, and he calls this person foolish. Now, foolish in our language doesn't mean, you know, if, if somebody says you're a fool, you probably don't walk away as angry as if, you know, they say you're a jerk or, um, or some other word maybe that has four letters in it, then you don't walk away as angry. But in that time, the fool was, this was a really derogatory comment. In, in fact, the whole Proverbs is dedicated to exposing the destructive thoughts and actions and feelings of the fool. And in the Bible, the fool, it, if you're called a fool, it means you don't believe in God. You don't believe in who God is. So those are the people that are separate from God. So when James says, you foolish person, this is strong language that he's using here. It's not, it's not light language. Um, and so as we go on into verse 21, he says, was not, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? So Abraham, God told Abraham, take your son up and kill him as a sacrifice to me. And um, Abraham didn't understand but he had faith in God. He went. God stopped him. God didn't let him kill him. And he, he was just testing Abraham's faith. And so what? Um, this is a reference back to Genesis 15, 6, where um, God says, and he believed the Lord, he being Abraham, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if you read the Old Testament, Abraham was declared righteous by God in chapter 15 of Genesis, he didn't actually go offer, Isaac's not even born at this point. He didn't go offer Isaac until chapter 22. So this is years later from when he's been declared righteous that he actually goes to, to offer Isaac. James flips the script though. So he says, was not our father justified, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Then you see him go down in verse 23 and he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So James is saying, James is flipping it and saying he offered him, and, and because he offered him, that's what made him righteous. And the point is not that James is contradicting the Old Testament. He's saying when Abraham believed God with his, and he let his heart be changed by God, he left his family, he went to a foreign land, he obeyed the things that God told him to do, that belief, that righteousness was a banner over his whole life. And so him offering his son was as good as done years later because he had put his faith in God and God was going to work through that faith to bring about different acts than Abraham would have ever done separate from the faith. So it's almost like one of those um, future, sometimes the prophets will talk in this where they're declaring something in the future as if it happened in the past. This is kind of what James is doing here. He's saying once Abraham believed, it was sealed that he was going to, that he was going to obey God and and offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. Um, that his, his righteousness is what drove his actions to do that. Um, in verse 21 and 22, again, as we talked about, um, I, I want to just make one point here that Douglas Moo does a great job connecting back to. Uh, in verse 
22, he says, you see that faith was active along with works and that faith was completed by works. And he connects this back to James 1, 2 through 4. So in James 1, 2 through 4, it says, um, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So again, remember these people are poor, they're persecuted. James is saying, find joy in that because that poverty, that persecution, those trials, they're going to result in a deep, genuine faith where you're going to love God more than you ever would have separate from those, those trials. And, the, and he's making a similar connection here. He's saying those acts of obedience, as you do acts of obedience to God through faith, they're going to lead to more acts of obedience, which are going to lead to a deeper, sustaining faith in God. And so just as trials and, and persecution and hard times can produce a sweet, genuine faith and an intimacy with God that we can't have otherwise, James is saying obedience can have the same effect on your heart, that that faith can lead, um, lead to more obedience. Um, so verse 23, we already kind of talked about, and, and it says that the scripture was fulfilled um, and he was counted as righteousness and called, counted as righteous and called a friend of God. So I'm going to go, I'm going to skip verse 24 um, somewhat for time's sake. And verse 26 is kind of a repeat of verse 24. So we're going to spend a little bit of time there. But in verse 25, um, James shifts from Abraham. Now again, remember Abraham, he was the father of the Jewish people. He was chosen by God to start a whole nation, and that whole nation's purpose was to point the whole world to God. And he communed with God. He was promised at 75 that he would have a son. He and his wife had never had kids. 25 years later, he had a son. So for James to appeal to Abraham makes a lot of sense. Abraham, there's a lot recorded in the Bible about his life. There's a lot recorded about his faith and his rights, his acts of righteousness toward God. Um, many Jewish people would often appeal to God, to Abraham as the patriarch. So the religious leaders, a lot of times would claim him as their father. And that's why they had right standing before God. But he goes to Rahab. And why does he follow Abraham with Rahab? I mean, he could have picked Noah. Remember, God called Noah to build an ark when it had never rained on the earth. He said he was going to bring rain and bring a flood. When, and up until that point, there had never been rain. And it took Noah a hundred years to build the ark. And people made fun of him the whole time. I mean, that, that's a lot of action and that's a lot of faith. A flood is coming with rain that you've never seen and you have to work a hundred years to build this giant boat. He could have picked him. He could have picked Moses. Moses communed with God um, almost face to face. He was as close as anybody's ever seen to being without being in heaven, to seeing God. He led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He told Pharaoh of the 10 plagues that were going to come, and they were fulfilled. He could have picked Moses, but he picks Rahab. And not only, he's not even trying to sugarcoat it. He doesn't want us to think he's picking another Rahab. He says, and in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute. He wants us to know which Rahab he's talking about, okay? And he wants us to know that the backstory is messy. And so why does he pick Rahab? I think there's a really, really important point here, and we can miss it if we're not careful. He's highlighting God's grace. God can reach into any heart, regardless of pedigree 
education, morality, um, what you've done in your past, God can reach into any heart and he can bring genuine faith. Not only genuine faith, but he can bring lasting faith that brings him glory. Rahab is mentioned in Hebrews 13 among with, uh, with Abraham and all the people of faith. Um, we don't know much about her life. We know that when she was an alien, she was not she was not originally born a Jewish person, but when Joshua sent the two spies into Jericho so that they could invade it and and take the land that God had promised to them, she hid the spies, protected them from the authorities who were trying to capture them, and sent them out of the city safely. And we know that she was the mother of Boaz, and we know that Boaz was in the lineage of Jesus. So we don't know much about her life, but we know that she was at one time a prostitute. We know that um, she was turning to God when her people in her city were rebelling and turning away from God. We know God saved her and that he brought about genuine faith and we know she was in the lineage of Jesus. In fact, there are three women in the lineage of Jesus who all have sexual impurity or immorality in their past. And God is highlighting for us that regardless of what's happened, regardless of if, if you feel gifted or ordinary or or you've had a good family background or a bad family background, or, or you have, you know, in general, been rebellious your whole life or tried to be obedient your whole life, we are all dead and rebellious apart from God. And he has to come in and bring true saving faith to us. So I think if you, if you look at the contrast of the people that he chose, he's choosing Abraham to highlight God's um, provision and choosing him, and he's choosing Rahab to highlight that God can save anyone. So he, um, he says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. It seems like a pretty simple thing, but again, her people are rebelling against God and what he wants to do. And in the middle of that, she's turning and having faith in God and he uses her in a mighty way. Um, so I just want to close with verse 26. James gives us a really helpful image here, uh, and I want to close with that image and then also with a quote from Martin Luther. So um, one thing to keep in mind is our God is an acting God. He tells us a lot in Scripture about who he is. He tells us that he's loving. He tells us that he's forgiving. He tells us um, that he's sovereign. If you read Isaiah 40, he tells us that he created the world. He marked off the boundaries of the land and the, and the um, sea. He tells us a lot of things about himself, but he is also an acting God. You see him come in and rescue his people Israel out of slavery. You see him come in and deliver them from their enemies many times. You see Jesus leave heaven and come down to earth to live among people who are rejecting him and are cursing him and to die for those same people and for their sins. And then to offer that life and that salvation to the people who, who have turned their backs on him. So we see not only does God tell us a lot about who he is, but he does a tremendous amount for us. In fact, he does everything for us. He tells us that, again, that we are dead spiritually, that we have nothing to offer him, but he chooses us anyway and he adopts us into his family. So in verse 26, James says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So I think this image of life and death is really helpful. So imagine if you and I are walking through the woods and maybe we've, we've driven there with my bike rack and our bikes on it and we've decided to walk through the woods. And so, um, so we're walking through the woods and we come upon 
a body lying there. And so if we're having a conversation we probably, and we're walking, we probably stop walking and we probably stop talking. We probably look at the body, we probably look at each other, and then we probably listen. Do we hear any snoring? Do we hear any breathing? Then we probably look. Do you, do you see the stomach going up and down or not? Um, then maybe we begin to have a discussion if we don't see any, if, any of those things. Is this person alive? Is this person dead? Maybe we make a noise. Maybe we clap our hands. Maybe we nudge him with our foot or stick. And then maybe, depending on how creepy he looks, and then maybe if none of those things are working, we reach down to see if the body is warm or cold and if we can get a pulse. And, and if, if the body's cold and we can't get a pulse, we know the body is dead and this is weird and we're going to have a weird story to tell our friends. Now, imagine you and I are walking through the woods and we see somebody walking toward us and he walks up and he starts talking, he sticks out his hand, he shakes our hand. We probably don't stop and have the same powwow about, hey, do you think this person's alive or dead? We don't need to do that because we can hear him talking. We saw him walking. We felt him shake our hand. That's the point of what James is saying here. Walking, talking, shaking your hand don't make you alive, but you cannot do those things unless you are alive. And so he's saying, you cannot do works to make yourself alive spiritually. But if you're alive spiritually, God has already planned lots of good works and fruit for you to do and bear. And Martin Luther, now keep in mind, remember, Martin Luther was the father of the Reformation. Coming out of the Middle Ages, God used him to start a spiritual awakening of saved by faith alone. Because at the time when Luther was, was brought up, um, a lot of people said that you had to do penance. Um, there were things like indulgences. There were traditions of the church that people believed all of these things had to be done to be saved by God. It was not just a belief in God. You also had to do some things to offer to God. So Luther spent his whole life carrying this banner of a message saying, no, it is by faith alone. You cannot do anything to earn God's favor. And this is a time where that message was not popular. He, there were times he had to hide for his life. There were times that the Catholic Church was trying to kill him. This was a message that was out of favor. So for him to say what I'm about to read, the guy who's, who's known in history as faith alone and flying in the face of you can do anything to, to please God apart from his spirit, this is what he says about our faith. It is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them. It has already done this and is constantly doing them. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for your word. I pray that we don't leave wanting to do better or try harder for you. I pray, Lord, that we don't leave thinking that we have to work to earn your favor. But I do pray, Lord, that we leave motivated by your love, that you were willing to sacrifice yourself when we hated you when we were running from you so that we could be adopted into your family. Jesus, you were willing to come and humble yourself from the throne of the universe, from, from being in dominion over everything and come to be born as a man so that you could conquer sin and death and offer that life to us. And so I pray, Lord, that our hearts are motivated from that love to share that truth with others. 
I pray, Lord, that our hearts are motivated to love each other well, to be patient, to be joyful, to be filled with peace, not to be anxious, not to be worried about finances or health or anything else, Lord. I pray, Lord, that our hearts are resting in you, but I I pray that that rest leads to us loving others well and loving each other well. And so I pray right now as we go to communion, Lord, that we'll reflect on all that you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, that we will be excited and trust that you are going to do much more through us. We thank you for this time this morning. In your name, amen.